Media Network. I am your host, Keith Revere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. Uh, for the past 20 years or so, I've been a part of prison rehabilitation and aftercare, kind of reaching out to those whom the world deems unlovable, uh, trying to see the positive uh, in everybody. That's why this is called the lighter side of serial killers. I know most of society writes men and women like this off, and maybe rightfully so. I don't want to argue too much about that. Um, but for me, a lot of these men and women are going to get parole. They're going to get back on the streets. Um, now we're talking about serial killers, you know, mass murderers, school shooters. Um, most of the people I deal with and have dealt with, um, are more of the, uh, the smaller criminals. They're in for five years, two years, 10 years or less, definitely getting out. Um, so prison rehabilitation is a big passion of mine. Uh, my book, The Story of You, about Yumasaki, a large portion of that book, is calling out the American prison system to be so punishment-minded, negative reinforcement style. Um, they, the men and women leave um, like monsters. Uh, they go in, in in bad shape mentally, uh, but they leave uh, so much worse than they were, uh, very little rehabilitation, more lock up and lock them up, throw away the key style, um, unlike other facilities like in Norway with positive reinforcement where – the percentage that they're going to reoffend is now um, closer to 20% chance within three to five years versus American prison system, which is over 70% chance um, likely to reoffend within three to five years. Uh, so that's partly why I do what I do. Um, and I give a platform to people um, who might not normally have a platform um, to talk about their case if they wish, to talk about their artwork, to talk about how. Uh, maybe even God has changed their life. If they're a religious person on the positive, we're going to see a lot of that coming up. I have David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, um, who usually goes by the son of Hope now, to talk about how religion has changed his life. Manson family member Bruce Davis is going to be coming on soon to talk about the uh, same thing, about how faith has turned his life around. And my first book, Serial Killers in Heaven and Victims in Hell, goes into detail, talking about my conversations about both of them, uh, also Charles Tex Watson for the Manson family. Um, I've really pinpointed uh, the people that claim Christianity as their religion to see if they truly have changed. Um, I have a background in theology, so I think I was up to the task. I let the reader decide uh, if it was true or not. Um, their faith is genuine or, you know, kind of a show for a parole board. So uh, it's not a big book. Uh, check it out on Amazon. Uh, I got signed copies here if you want. Same with the Stew Review. But both available on Amazon, both doing very well. Positive feedback on that. Again, it's not a how-to book, how to be a Christian, but I do lay out what it means to be a Christian at first. Uh, but it's not a preachy book. We're just looking at the faith of certain specific individuals. And hope you check that out. But tonight, that's not why I'm here. That's not what this podcast is about. Um a few of the podcasts has been with the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. Um, I've gotten so much positive feedback. You guys love to hear from him. We just had a great Q&A last week. Um, I had a guest lined up this week, but due to a facility, um, some things going on there, he wasn't able to join us. So me and Keith talked about it, and he thought would it be a good idea to talk about all eight of his cases, all eight of his victims in detail. 
Um, so many documentaries and TV shows have talked about it, but hearing it right from Keith. For example, there's a CNN documentary coming out soon, um, or they're working on it now. I'm not sure how soon it'll be out about Keith, and they never talked to Keith, which is amazing. When Keith is so accessible, you know, I literally talked to him a couple times a week, and he and I, I tried to reach out to CNN. Uh, so it was a female producer. I'm not sure who, um, but I have never really gotten a response. Uh, for them to either ask me questions or to me put uh, them in touch with him. Um, so who knows? Um, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but for tonight, uh, Keith has, you know, have all these notes and written out. So what we're going to do, we're going to let Keith talk about the case itself. Um, instead of, you know, just a Q&A all the time, we're going to do a little something different tonight and just let him talk. Um, and then we'll take it from there. Uh, so, Keith, the platform is all yours. Okay. All right. Absolutely. All right. Well, you know, the uh, my second case of, came about in August of 1992. Um, you know, I had the, the Bennett murder happened in January 21st, 1990. And then I had to deal with the Don Slagle issues from April 13th of 1990 up until April of 92. Now, um, it heard what a he said, she said thing, and I didn't want to go through that. And the case was dismissed. In April of 92, I obtained my CDL. Now, while I was unemployed for about a year, uh, the CDL license came into being. It used to be a, um, uh, a chauffeur's license where anyone driving a chauffeur limousine or truck or anything had the same license. So I had to apply for that, and I got my CDL in April. I drove again for A&G Trucking out of Yakima, Washington. I hauled reefer trailers all over 11 Western states. So why, why is that important? Well, 11 Western is where I was. There's been cops come to me over the years trying to say that they had murders that happened in 1992 in Illinois and other places where I hadn't been. So when I, when I met Bennett, my plans were to have a nice time with her. The last thing in my mind would have been murder. I, it was not even in the equation. I just wanted to have a good time with her. But now it was all about the thought of what I was doing without. Now, for the last two and a half years, the thought of what I didn't do to Bennett had clouded my mind. In other words, uh, I was getting away with murder. I played with my desire. You know, in other words, I had time to rehash over what I'd done. And time was the... The, the big thing is that if only I had spent more time with her and not killed her so soon, um, I would have had, we would have had a lot more, you know, a lot more fun or whatever. Had I known that's what it was that I was going to murder her. Well, the next time I will spend more time with whoever I'm with is what I thought. That was my mindset as I was entering the trucking industry and I was going back over on the road. And so I, so I turned, so I basically I turned to prostitution to have someone to be with for a longer time, uh, an hour paid, an hour spent. I remember I, I, I had a, a prostitute one time where I picked her up and, and she said, I'll give you a good hour of, of, of enjoyment. And so I paid her her fee. And then about 15 minutes after I got, you know, I was done. I was just, you know, I had gotten done with the wine and she started getting dressed. And I was like, wait a minute. We're going to have, you said one hour. I'm not going to, we're going to do 
hour, and that's what I get. It's, uh, you can bet that probably after she got done with me, she decided the next time she told John that I'm going to pay, you know, you're going to pay for a, a one-time thing, and then when I get done, you get done. But anyway, so I had uh, uh, a lot of local girls, like uh, I had Sharon in Yakima, which is a prostitute, and Linda in Oceanside, California, as well as uh, girlfriends pretty much all over the country where I was driving up and down the road. Now, what I craved above all else was to spend as much time with a woman as I could before she had to leave. And that's what I was uh, I was craving for. Now, I was also driving up down the highway. And uh, what also kind of like made a bad impression on me was my dealings with Don Slagle. On the he said, she said, where I was arrested and let go three times and eventually the case was dismissed. So I didn't want to go through that again. Now in August of 1992, I was driving uh, a road going to Arizona and I was at the brake check area on Interstate 15, just south of Victorville. Now Victorville is a, a place where uh, Roy Rogers Museum is, the actor. They have a, a big horse out in the front, and uh, you drive right on by that on 15. And this brake check area is right before you drop down into San Bernardino. And uh, the reason I was parked there was because and it was a, a big parking lot, and I was the only truck there. Um, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning. And the uh, scale map, uh, the way station down at the bottom of the hill there was open, and that's why I was there. I was underneath my trailer and truck. I was adjusting my brakes and make sure my paperwork was all in order. And uh, so I, I, I went in underneath it. I was adjusting my brakes, and all of a sudden I heard a voice. It says, hey, mister, can I get a ride? Now, I looked around. I mean, I thought I was hearing things. I looked around, and I didn't see anything. And then uh, I, was, I went to, back to adjusting my brakes. I was in a couple rolls, and I was underneath there. And all of a sudden, I said, hey, mister, can I get a ride? And I was like, I slid out to see a blonde with um, uh, light clothing on. She had a T-shirt with a what looked like a motorcycle emblem on her shirt. And then she had these, like, bleached-out blue jeans. And uh, I asked her, are you a prostitute? And she said, sometimes. And I said, well, okay, well, where'd you come from? Because there wasn't any trucks around. I didn't see any. And she pointed to the back of my trailer. And so I got up on my knees and I stood up and I said, back to the trailer. I walked back there and there was this Albertsons, um, you know, the semi truck was parked down at the bottom of the hill. And he was, he stopped there and uh, he was, he had given her a ride to that point And then I realized he, he had the same dilemma I did. He was going to have to go across the scale house and, they, Albertsons had a no rider policy, and I knew this. And he had pulled over hoping that he could give her a ride. He could hand her off to somebody else that could get her past the scale house because I had a sleeper and he didn't. So he figured he could just drop her off. And when I, I turned her and I said, now, where are you going? And she said, well, I'm going to Los Angeles. And I said, well, I'm not going to Los Angeles. My uh, my next stop, if I, if I take off from down here, my next stop is going to be Cabazon. And that's uh, just on the other side of Banning, California, on Interstate 10. 
And she said, well, I have, I have to go to L.A. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to go there, and that's where I'm going to go. Now, you could probably get a very good ride from there because then everything would be going straight into L.A. from there, not a side road. And so I, uh, she said, well, okay, I'll give you that. And then I went back, and I, I looked at this guy, and I waved him off. And so he took off. The, the officer driver took off. And uh, we got in the truck. I got under under my coveralls, and, and I got in the truck. And she's sitting there. And she said, well, let's go. And I said, well, I have paperwork to do. And I also have to uh, wait about an hour and a half. I can't just go yet. And that's why we sat there for an hour and a half. Now, I thought about, you know, maybe proposition or having, you know, getting some sex at the time because she's a prostitute, right? I thought this was going to happen. Well, I also had to cross that damn scale. And I didn't want to have an irate or an uncompromising situation happen. So I decided that, no, I'm not going to do that right there. If, if she rides with me all the way to, to, to Cabazon, I figured, well, we get there. And then I'd proposition her. And that's what I, I, I figured on doing it. So eventually we took off on down. Now, we crossed the scale house, and they, they, they just waved me on. I didn't have to stop in there. And then at the I-15 and the Interstate 215, there's a split there. And the 215 goes to the east, and the and the I-15 goes down to Fontana. We had got in an argument. She wanted, she thought that I could. Why don't I just drive her to Fontana and then she's closer to LA? And I was I was mad, and I said, Well, I'm gonna I, I'm going to Banning. I told you, and I, I put my foot down. This is what I'm gonna do. And so. Which the, the the idea of her saying sometimes I was thinking there was a good idea that we could probably make a deal and we got to that. Now my deal with my deal with Riverside County is based on the story I will tell you now. Um, but there's another story to this case for a short little bit. Now my deal, okay, Cabazon, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Remember Pee Wee Herman's Great Adventure? Certainly. It's uh, yeah. It's it's. Remember the scene where he's in a they're in a dinosaur head, the, the brontosaurus head. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Cabazon is a Chevron truck stop that has a restaurant, has a gift shop, and in the back of the parking lot is just uh, uh, a bunch of you know made up dinosaurs, and that's where Pee Wee Herman had his great adventure. Anyway. I, we pulled in there, and I parked on the, uh, uh, as close to the uh, dinosaur park as we could. I parked there, and we went in and had uh, some iced tea and came back on out, and I said, well, there's there's the highway there if you want to take off. She had no, she had no luggage, had nothing, so she didn't have a license, um, had no money, and I just pointed to the road, and she said, well, your, your truck's air-conditioned. Let's, uh, let's just go back there and uh, maybe have a little party. And I said, well, you want to, you know, I'll tell you a little bit when we have a little fun. And she said, okay. So we got in there and we're having sex there. And the uh, there's a couple canine unit uh, cars came in. The cops came in. And they parked right in the shadows of my trailer because it was like 100 degrees out. And they had the dog who rolled the windows down. The dogs were kind of like, you know, something to, to cool off them. I told the 
off here. Yeah, I take your time. I'm, I'm not going anywhere for a while until I wasn't. And uh, the, the big thing there was that I had, had had company with her, and she decided that she was going to go with me to Arizona instead of going to L.A. And like I said, this is a story I told the, the Riverside County County of uh, Riverside County, California Sheriff's Department when they came in to talk to me a long time ago. And that's what I got my deal. I got a deal of 25 to life running concurrent with uh, Oregon based on this story. Now, I tell it like I get, we, we take off, we go to Coachella, uh, which is um, one of the big band places where they go, but there's Dillon Road where the bird bird truck stop. We parked in the back row and uh, we got out, went in and had a shower and had something to eat and on the way back uh, she wanted me to buy her a, a windbreaker or something like that and, and we and I said no. I wasn't going to get involved in that. We got back up to the truck and right about that time um, a little uh, blue pickup drove on by with a flash of amber light on the top and she started talking, well, if you're not going to get anything for me, why am I here? And I think you should just give me what's in your wallet. And I'm going to, uh, if you don't, I'll just tell that guy in that little pickup truck that you assaulted me. And, and, and uh, they'll believe me and not you. And, and, of course, I told her, you don't know who you're messing with. And then I went and grabbed her and strangled her right there. Now, that's the story I told them. Now, the real story is... Um, kind of a little bit off. The real story is while I was having sex with her that I had paid for, I decided to kidnap her to spend more time with her. After my release, I held her down and tied her up, mm-hmm. put tape over her mouth, and drove east towards Coachella. I had a big problem. Uh, she was in the back, a sleeper, tied up, and uh, I had made my not too tight. I've been too nice to that part of it. And so she got out of the office. The, the curtain behind me was closed. I heard some noise back there while I was driving. And the, uh, uh, I opened up the curtain. Here she was. She's completely dressed. And she was getting ready to jump out of the truck. And I just said, oh, my God, I can't let that happen. So, and so yeah, so I'm driving down I-10 towards Indio, and there's this wide spot on the side of the road where a lot of the trucks go in, and I parked in there before, and I was like, God, i got to get back there. I can't let her escape. And so I entered this parking lot, which is just, just a, a wide spot and maybe 100 yards deep. There's no other trucks in there. I, I, I came off the interstate 10, and I was there right here about 20 miles an hour. I, I Put the truck in neutral, pointed the truck in the general direction of where it is. I go about 20 miles an hour. I got out of the seat, reached over, pulled the maxi brakes on the on my dash, which means it just blocked up my trailer brakes. And then I ran back in and secured her, grabbed her, threw her down on the floor, and strangled her to death. I did, you know, I wanted this to end right away because this, is, this wasn't working out the way I thought it would. I thought that I would 
kidnap her, and then we'd, I'd have fun with her later on. Because I had a lot of time to kill, pardon the pun. There was, I had a lot of, you know, I didn't have to be in Arizona until 2 o'clock the following morning, so I had probably an extra eight hours I could sit there. And that was my, that was a problem. I had time. And so I would hope that I could make, would be able to hold on to her for a lot longer, but it didn't work out that way. I had this dead body in there, and uh, it was crazy. You know, after I got done with the deed, I drove down to Dillon Road. I parked in like the back, like I said I did. I locked up the truck, and I went in. I had myself a shower. I had myself a meal. I walked back to my truck, and it was in the back parking lot. And I sat in there, and that's when that little blue pickup drove on by with a flash of amber light. And I thought, man, i got to get the hell out of here because there's too many people in here. So I drove back out on the Interstate 10, and I headed towards Blythe, California. Now, as you come under Gillen Road, you climb up the hill, and on your left is the uh, patent, you know, the, the General Patent Museum. I went past that exit and to the following exit, either the following or the next one after that, one of those. I pulled off the off-ramp, got up on top of the... On, uh, under the on-ramp coming back on the freeway, and there's a wide spot, and I pulled off of it. And I figured, well, I'm going to carry her dead body and put it in a desert somewhere up there. But it was daylight, and I couldn't risk it. So I just, I rolled her up in a blanket, and I threw her up against the inside of the sleeper. I lay down beside her, and I was listening to the AM FM radio, as well as the CB radio was bouncing. I had a, had a scanner in there, and I was listening to all that. And I heard a couple truckers talking on the radio about this, this full-grown smoky bear parked against this big old blue Peterville, or plum, plum-colored Peterville. Now, I thought to myself, wait a minute, I'm driving a, a plum-colored Peterville. What the hell is this cop doing parked next to me, right? So I, I get up, and I lean out and look over the window, and here is this full-grown smoky bear. Now, what is a small full-grown smoky bear? Well, he's a, he's a California Highway Patrol with all the lights and the whistles and all the gadgets on top of his car. And I'm sitting there going, like, he's parked. I can't leave. I got a dead body in my sleeper, and I can't leave because he's parked next to me. So I'm, I'm thinking, well, what? What the hell is he doing there? So what I do is I, I know the Lord hates a coward, right? So I grab a couple Cokes out of my fridge that I have plugged in my cigarette lighter. I get out, I walk over to his driver's door, and, I, and he rolls his window down. And I will go to hand him a Coke, have a Coke. And he says, I can't take that, but thank you very much. And while I'm there, I'm talking to him, and he says, well, i got a plane flying overhead that can read the license plate off the back of your truck. And we're watching speeders coming by, and in a few minutes, I'll be chasing after a couple speeders. And I look over at his little notebook he has sitting there. He's wrote down that he's parked next to my truck. And he has the name of the truck, the number of the truck, and everything like that sitting there. And I'm sure he's going to put down he had a conversation with me at that time. So there's no way in hell I was going to take the body out later and put it in the desert behind that spot because I'm caught, right? So I sit there and say, well, I, I explained to him I was there because it's too hot outside and I was afraid that I'm going to roll a cap off on one of my tires, so that's why I'm parking. 
he understood. And pretty soon there's a couple cars go by and there's lights go on and off he goes. And I go back over to my truck and climb in. And I sit there and I wasn't there very long. I decided, well, screw this. I'm going to get the hell out of this area. So I drive down towards Blythe. And as I'm driving to Blythe, I'm thinking, where the hell am I going to put this body at? And so I, I look up around and I said, well, wait a minute. Highway 95 comes down to Blythe. Why don't I go up Highway 95? So that's why I turned north at Blythe up on Highway 95, went across the valley. And as I was coming up to the canyon where the, where, where the road goes into the canyon, to my left, it kind of, well, there's a, a sweeping turn to the right and there's a wide spot there where it looked like traffic had pulled off. I figured I'd pull in there. But I went, I went past that, went into the canyon, and within about five miles, I found a wide enough spot where I could turn around, and I came back and parked in that spot. And I waited until it got dark, because I wasn't going to move anything until it got dark. And as soon as it got to where people had to turn their lights on, I lifted up, I already picked the spot where I was going to put her right on the other side of this log, behind a big old bush. And so I, I carried her in the dark over and I put her against on the other side of this log. And I got back in the truck and I made my way to Arizona. And I crossed into Arizona and I found another truck stop pulled in there. And I got out and I, I took all my bedding because when I killed her, it soiled, she soiled my bedding. So I took all that and threw it away and had to start all over with the new, new, new blankets and everything. And that's uh, the basis behind the whole uh, number two. A few questions for you. Um, one, how specifically did you tie her up? You know, what, what did you use uh, that you had around the truck to tie her up? And since the original plan was to tie her up, you know, so like you had said, to have fun with her later, uh, why didn't you just tie her up better this time uh, to do that? You know, to, as you said, have fun with her at a later time instead of just killing her there. Well, I had some cordage in the truck. I always carried cordage, and I had some duct tape, and that was, a, that was a common thing we carried. Everyone, all truckers carried it. It's not, it not a killer's kit. It was just something that we carried along in there, and so I had chosen at that time to use that. Now, later when I when I go back in to secure her, I panicked. I was like so mad that this wasn't working out the way I thought it would. I just needed to end. I just felt it'd be best to end it right then, not to, not to, not to give it another chance. That was bad enough. It was almost, you know, it was almost it was surreal. Back and she's already dressed and she's ready to, now when she grabbed on the door, when I looked back at her, she says, I, she said something like, I'm tired of this shit. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure she was tired of this shit. And uh, I, it, 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 was, it was kind of weird because when I pulled into the parking lot, I was still doing 20 mile an hour. I pulled out my Maxibus. I could feel my brakes engaging at the same time I was on her and, and pushing her down and strangling her. It was uh, it was real crazy because uh, then I looked around once I got her down on the floor and had my fist on her. I was looking around and I had parked you know, somewhere in there and there's nobody else around me. And the truck was idling and, and I just finished it. Once I had put my hands on her, I just, I just finished her and, and that was the end of it. I didn't want uh, I didn't want to deal with this anymore. It was uh, it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. So that's just like the Bennett case. It never turned out the way I wanted it to. It just you know went in another direction. 
it was, uh, I was hoping for to spend a lot more time that we're, you know, I'd, I'd play with her later, kind of like. It didn't work out. You know, when I hear you say that she said, I'm tired of this, kind of sounds like she's been through this before. Obviously, she was a, a prostitute. Um, but it sounds like it might not have been the first time she's um, been tied up or in that situation before. You know, she, she didn't have any clothes. She didn't have any baggage with her. She had no purse. She had no... She did, matter of fact, uh, when she got in, she asked me for a cigarette. And I said, well, I do have smoke, but I don't smoke. But I, I gave her a cigarette. And then next thing you know, she wanted another one. And next thing you know, she wanted the whole pack that I had in my glove box. And uh, so that, that was... that. And then she wanted to get in an argument over going to Fontana or going to Amazon. And I... She wanted to take control when the moment she got in a truck and say this is where she wanted to go and, and I was I was pushing back. I didn't want I didn't I was thinking ahead, thinking, you know, I will pay for it and uh, she wanted forty, I give her thirty, I ended up taking the money back, you know, that kind of thing. It was uh it it, it wasn't like she she was used to doing that. She was on the road and traveling light so she could get up and run if she needed to. And that's what it's just, like she, she said sometimes, sometimes, and that means all the time. I mean, why is it either sometimes a hooker or not a hooker? What, what is it? One or the other. Yeah, kind of, kind of like saying, I'm a little pregnant. You either are or you're not. <laughs> but but my, like I said, I, I made the story. Now, the reason why I made that other story up is, is my lawyer had told me not to show premeditation or anything and I had planned on I had planned on uh, not letting her go I was I was, I was actually planning on on murdering her at a later time but not that time and based on what I'd done with, with Bennett was the fact that I'd gotten away with it and I, that's my mindset was two and a half years of thinking of what you know what I could have had done if I know that's what the end result was going to be in the in the Bennett case it just became, you know, there's something I didn't have. It was about time. And here I was, while I was driving in this time here, normally I, I'm out of time. Now, one of the things that in the happy face letter that was sent to the Oregonian, I mentioned in this case here that she was in my truck for four days and that she was my sex slave for four days. That that was a complete lie because I was trying to get the, the public up in arms about trying to reopen the Bennett case. So I, I threw a whole bunch of stuff out. When I went down there in 2010 to settle the case, they brought that letter up. They said, well, we could take this and we'll use that against you in court. I said, it was, it was just a made-up letter to try to get the Bennett case restarted. And all that, there's no, there's no way in hell I'd have somebody in my truck for four days. Yeah, I, mean, this was, I barely had her in there for four hours before that all happened. Did the, the policeman, uh, was he involved in the case at all, the one that you were talking to? Did he uh, remember you? Yeah, yeah, that's, that was one of the things that was funny part was that they, uh, they actually located the, the, the cop that had been sitting there, and he remembered that I showed up with the coconut, he had no idea that I had a body in there, and he didn't want his name known. <laughs> he wanted it to be, oh, no, no, I, no, don't bring me into this. I don't want them to know that I, I was 10 feet away from a corpse, and I didn't know it. That's crazy. And what were you saying uh, before, before we uh, started the conversation uh, recording? Um, that at the end of this, you said there's a twist to the story. Okay, so so there is a twist to this. The movie Joyride. Joyride. It rings a bell. I don't think I've seen it. This is where uh, these, these, these 
were driving along and, and uh, there's a truck driver that's a killer that, that's taunting them. You go on ride one, go on ride two. Go on ride two, they, uh, they mention things like from this case. Yeah, they talk about, you know, they're going to, they're traveling to Canada. I'm Canadian. They, they, they talk about, uh, they're in a restaurant where they bring up Pee Wee Herman's Great Adventure. And they, and if you get on the movie and you, you, you dig it up and, and there's a lot of things to that movie that pushes the narrative of, of the serial killer taunting them about get on a road to Canada kind of thing and this uh, this uh, truck driver was uh, uh, I remember the first one Joyride One where uh, he calls himself Candy Cane or something like that you might have you might have saw the movie I don't know if you didn't see the movie I think it, it, once in a while they, they come up with different but there's a spin off on this where they talked about the Pee Wee Herman's Great Adventure or the Waitress Around Pee Wee Herman's Great Adventure something along those lines but uh, this case, has, there's been a lot of different cases. Like, there's one where uh, I was watching a, um, uh, a CSI, CSI moment where they're talking about some, some gal had uh, been uh, dragged by a semi. And she, was, she, she came out of a, of a store to hide and crawled underneath her, and her head was up near the drive shaft. The drive shaft looked on her hair and ripped her head off. Anyway, they that's basically how it came about. But I watched that. And I said, "Boy, you guys are really starving for information. I want my royalties? I want Walmart to give me a you know they're using this money thing." <laughs> exactly. But yeah, there's uh, there's some this case here. Like say, I had uh, made a deal with them back in 1996 and took them till 2009 and 2010. Well, actually, 2009 was when my daughter was on Oprah. Only after the fact that got on Oprah did they want to settle the case they wanted to bring me there and give me and go to trial they actually believed that they contacted I heard my, through my lawyer that they contacted him uh, to see if he was still involved in my case and he never 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 wrote back or never responded to him so I think they just figured that I was on my own and that I wouldn't have any representation and so they they brought me down to Riverside on the hopes of taking me to trial now, instead of instead of honoring their deal to life sentence, they were going to take me to trial and try to put me on death row. And that was based on my daughter Melissa was on Oprah. And when I got when I got to Riverside, the uh, the, the guards at Riverside said, "I saw your daughter on Oprah." And I said, "That's why you're here." I said, "No, no shit. That's that's because you know my daughter wanted to get involved." and push this narrative along. Anyway, so so I get there, and of course I walk into the uh, uh, the courthouse there on my arraignment in January. I, I spent all, all, you know, the rest of December and January in my arraignment. And I met my lawyer for the first time, and by that time my lawyer had sent me the letter of intent, which I had in my front pocket when I walked over there for my arraignment. And I said to my lawyer, I said, well, I guess we're going to take care of this today. And she said, uh, take care of what? <laughs> I said, we're going to take care of the life sentence that I have in writing there. She said, well, there's no life sentence you have in writing. What the hell are you talking about? There's no deal. I said, yes, there is. There is a deal. She said, well, I haven't seen one. I said, well, reach in my front pocket. She 
pulls it out and she reads the deal. And she goes over and talks to the judge. And the judge calls the prosecutor over. And now the prosecutor's pissed off because they brought me down here for a possible trial. And now they have to honor the deals they made back in Conversation with uh, the happy face killer Keith Jesperson talking about uh, his victim number two. Um, as uh, requested uh, and granted, Keith is going to be talking about uh, all eight of his murders in detail. Um, there's a lot of documentaries and um, YouTube videos out there, people talking about these cases, but now we have right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, in very detailed. Some of you might think it's going into too much detail, but hey, it's a true crime podcast. Even though it is the lighter side, uh, we we mix in lighter side stuff, and obviously also. Um, but what an opportunity um, to hear right from Keith Jesperson, right from a serial killer, directly from him um, about the facts of the case, the true facts, and not just the facts, but what was going on inside of his mind. I mean, not every day you hear from a serial killer saying, "This is uh, why I did it." This is what I was thinking. You know, I didn't just want to have sex with her. I wanted to tie her up uh, because after thinking about his first murder, Tanya Bennett, he's like, man, I I should have tied her up and had more fun with her, as he said, his words. Um, So that was his intention with victim number two. After he had sex with her, tie her up to do it, as he said, have more fun. Obviously, more sex, whatever he was going to do, since he said he was going to kill her anyway. Um, So it's insightful. Uh, I know guys like John Douglas started interviewing serial killers to learn how to catch other serial killers, get inside their mind, get inside a mind or somebody uh, have a psychopathic mind um, and what their intentions were. Um, so it's been very fascinating. I mean, I enjoy talking to him. I think he's, uh, if you lay the serial killer side, uh, part aside, um, he's fun to talk to him. We just record these, obviously, but we talk every couple of days about pretty much everything. Um, but it seems well, his mind is not like our minds. You know, that's another reason why I do this is so you get a glimpse inside of somebody's mind, like my book, The Story of You, of you, Masaki. Uh, that's why you, not why owe you. Um, and how brain abnormalities make people do things they wouldn't normally do or how their brains work. Like, well, if I was in Keith's position, no, you can't say that because he has a different mind than you. He already said he was never, no one's ever studied his brain or MRIs of his brain to see if it's different uh, than us. Uh, but I'm sure it is. Um, so anyway, stay tuned. Um, we're going to be hearing from Bruce Davis from the Manson family very soon. I've been talking to him uh, every couple of days. Uh, he's only allowed 15-minute phone calls, so it takes a little while to get a kind of a recorded podcast out. Uh, so we're working on that. Uh, and next time we hear from Keith, we'll be talking about victim number three. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate your support. And until next time, see ya. See <laughs> ya.